infrastructure. It's in the context of a, a short report we just released called Achieving Sustainability Through Quality Infrastructure. We're doing this in the context of the G20, uh, which is going to be held later this month in Osaka, Japan. Uh, we're very grateful to our friends in, in Japan, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for supporting this work. Um, I'm going to turn the floor over to my uh, friend and colleague, Matt Goodman, uh, to make some introductory remarks, and then uh, we're going to start the program. Matt, come on up. Okay, thanks, Dan. Good morning, everyone. And uh, let me join Dan in welcoming you to CSIS. Welcome online viewers as well. Um, so um, this issue of quality infrastructure is something that uh, both Dan and I have been working on for a number of years. Um, we have, um, uh, in addition to the, the projects and this new report that uh, Dan has uh, just put out, he and I uh, helped to um, staff a task force that was co-chaired by Charlene Barshevsky and uh, Steve Hadley, the former National Security Advisor. We issued this report called The Higher Road back in April, uh, which um, basically made the case for why the United States ought to be more engaged in the global infrastructure uh, story and what the U.S. Uh, brings to the table. Uh, we're not going to bring trillions of dollars of public money, but we do bring, uh, we might bring trillions of dollars or tens of trillions of dollars of private money if we do the right things in terms of um, uh, bringing the U.S. approach, U.S. companies, rule of law uh, to this uh, to this story, um, and so so uh, commend to you this report because it has a lot of things that echo. I think this quality infrastructure story also. Um, um, we have a project called Reconnecting Asia, which is a, a map and database of infrastructure projects across the Eurasian supercontinent from you know, Britain to Japan uh, with about 14,000 hard infrastructure projects in a database, and we use that as a basis for doing analysis of, of what's happening. So that's uh, shameless advertising is, is done. The thing I want to just focus on quickly before Aikawa-san comes up and really informs you about what Japan's plans are for the G20 is to say something about the G20. In a previous life, I was a G20 yak. Uh, that's the proud beast that carries the Sherpa up the summit. Um, so that was the, the, some people like to call themselves the Sioux Sherpa, but I always prefer the term yak. Um, I got a haircut uh, since then. Um, so infrastructure, I was involved in the Korea year in 2010 when Korea hosted the G20, and that was the year that infrastructure was put on the G20 agenda as part of the development agenda that Korea introduced. They didn't get very far uh, with that at that time, but every host since then has, um, has uh, talked about infrastructure and tried to enhance uh, the conversation. And there were, last year there was um, infrastructure as an asset class was what um, uh, Argentina focused on. Uh, Japan is already working hard on this issue. Uh, the G20 finance ministers met earlier this month and they approved a set of principles which Dan alludes to in his uh, new report that you have in front of you. Uh, there's six principles that they, the G20 finance ministry group, actually the infrastructure working group of the G20 uh, came up with these principles and the G20 finance ministers um, blessed them. And they're really actually quite powerful, and I would commend them to you to read in, in, in whole, not just the, uh, the summary headlines, but read the, read the, uh, the content, because it's quite uh, striking. And if you did a word cloud around, um, uh, other than the word infrastructure would be a, a large one, uh, the other two words that would appear very large are life cycle cost uh, and sustainability which runs throughout uh, those principles. And those are things that you're going to talk a lot about here today, uh, sustainability and life cycle cost. Those are things that um, 
uh, that you know, we, I think, in the United States, I think Japan, for sure, and other partners uh, feel is, is critical, are critical concepts in pushing out this infrastructure investment, you know, the needs for which are in the trillions of dollars, tens of trillions of dollars. Um, and actually, to me, as a G20 watcher, if you told me that we were going to get the G20 uh, finance ministers, and presumably the leaders are going to bless this as well uh, next week in Osaka, uh, to approve a set of principles with those kinds of things in there, debt sustainability, uh, life cycle cost, uh, with China in the room and Russia in the room and other uh, players in the G20. It's a, it's a uh, rogues gallery uh, there and it's uh, sometimes difficult to agree on what to have for lunch. So uh, to agree on something as uh, significant as this I think is important and it validates something that I say all the time about the G20. I'm the last guy who actually still believes the G20 is important and if it didn't exist we'd have to create it because for one thing there's going to be another fire and you need a fire truck ready when the next crisis happens even if there isn't one today and it's not doing anything to put out fires you need you need that. The other reason though for the G20 to exist is to set an agenda for global economic cooperation and this is a, a perfect example of where you know, you get, okay, words on, a, on paper, but now the multilateral development banks or the U.S. Treasury or the Japanese um, uh, uh, JBIC or, or um, the finance ministry can push these principles in a lot of different forums and say, hey, we agreed to this. You know, your leader uh, endorsed these principles. And, and so it really actually has quite a lot of power. And I would uh, say that as we get distracted in the G20, over other issues, because frankly, you know, trade, Iran, probably some other things are going to dominate the headlines. Please focus on these things because they're actually quite important, and they're the things that are going to last um, through uh, multiple, you know, years of, of international uh, uh, policy conversations. So that's all I wanted to say, and uh, good luck uh, with the conference today. It sounds like an interesting topic. So thank you. Let me just say a couple of brief things about Ambassador uh, Aikawa, who's the Deputy Chief of Mission at the Embassy of Japan. Um, he had uh, prior, he was the De Director General of Disarmament, Nonproliferation, and Science, uh, Ambassador Rank, um, before taking this job in October 2017. Uh, he has also had a number of other uh, important roles uh, in the Foreign Ministry in Japan. Um, I was uh, privileged to participate in the Think Tank 20, which was sort of is like a pre-game uh, that was organized by a number of uh, well-known Japanese think tanks about a month ago. It was very successful. Uh, I know that the Osaka G20 is going to be very successful. I just want to recognize that the concept of quality infrastructure, which was introduced at the G7 that Japan hosted several years ago, I would describe as a triumph of Japanese diplomacy. I think it's something that's um, a very important concept and encompasses a number of different issues that we're going to unpack in this panel. And so um, let me, without further ado, introduce um, Ambassador Icaw. And Ambassador, please come on up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Rand. And I thank you, Mashi. Uh, you reminded me of the time that I was one of those uh, yaks. <laughs> At the, uh, that was uh, you know the the, the Russian hosted the, the G20 summit at uh, Saint Petersburg, and I, before that summit, uh, uh, there was a Syrian uh, issue was very big, and I, we were wondering Russia, uh, uh, you know, 
take take up this issue or no, because the G20 summit is about you know the global economies, and we are not supposed to discuss Syrian issues. But I say just uh, uh, just have a very small uh, gathering. I'm not sure what this Iranian situation would play out, but I I. You know, my, my hope is not, it's not going to dominate the G20 uh, Osaka summit because, uh, you know, as uh, Mr. Rand said, that, that there's a lot of other important issues like uh, quality infrastructure. So, but first of all, I'd like to thank uh, CSIS uh, for convening this panel discussion and publishing uh, this policy brief on this uh, topic of uh, critical importance for every one of us. Quality infrastructure forms a foundation for all economic activities, and conversely, the substandard infrastructure could incur damages to the environment, overburden the recipients with unsustainable debt, or even the cost of the lives of the people. So Japan, uh, Matthew actually stole most of the thing that I just wanted to say, but I. But anyway, just, uh, but Japan, you know, that uh, uh, has been promoting the concept of uh, quality infrastructure, uh, infrastructure for many years. And I, as, as he said, that uh, G20 finance ministers and central bank governors met quite recently in Fukuoka and agreed on this uh, G20 principles for quality infra infrastructure, like infrastructure investment which outlines principles on quality infrastructure development. As many elements of the G20 principles addressed in this uh, policy brief, but nonetheless it's very, very timely that uh, this policy brief is now being pre uh, published and I shared uh, by the public. So let me take this opportunity to outline some of the key elements of the recently agreed uh, uh, G20 principles and its path forward. The issue of uh, infrastructure has been discussed at the G20 process, as I said, in recent years, as in that it forms the foundation for economic growth and sustainable development. The challenge before us is how to fill the massive financial gap in infrastructure. It's uh, reportedly, it is about 15 trillion US dollars from 2017 to 2040, while ensuring quality. Japan has been leading this discussion in an effort to reach common understanding on what quality infrastructure in multilateral fora. And as uh, president of the G20 this year, uh, we put this, this issue as one of the, its priority agenda uh, for G20. G20 principles for quality infrastructure investment is built upon our past efforts such as uh, 2016 G7 Isashima uh, summit, uh, which we hosted, Japan hosted, and I, Isashima summit issued uh, its principles for promoting quality infrastructure, infrastructure investment. And this was a significant achievement that uh, as G20, of course, G20 is composed of the major infrastructure developer countries such as Japan, the US, and China, and a major recipient countries such as India and Indonesia. And it is remarkable that it's significant that G20 agreed for the first time on a common set of 
guiding principles for the strategic direction for quality infrastructure development. And on top of the fact that the major donors and the recipients agreed on a set of common principles, the contents of the principles themselves were very substantial. The major elements of the G20 principles are the following. One, number one, maximizing positive impact, including through technological transfer and know-how. Number two, raising economic efficiency through life cycle cost perspectives. Number three, uh, integrating environment consideration. Number four, resilience against natural disasters and other risks. Number five, integrating and social consideration. And number six, and last one, is uh, strengthening governance through ensuring openness, transparency, debt sustainability, and anti-corruption. And I believe that those elements are both comprehensive and robust enough. In particular, it is highly significant that these elements, such as the debt sustainability, transparency, and openness, form a part of a G20 quality infrastructure principles. So, we so what is about the path forward? We expect that the G20 leaders will endorse the principle at the Osaka summit. Uh, Osaka summit is taking place uh, 28th and 29th of this month. And I, am, I hope that I, the leaders themselves are engaged in uh, uh, substantial discussions over there on this topic. And I, with the leaders' endorsement, our task before us is to how to put those principles into practice. So in this regard, I, be, I believe the three aspects are worth mentioning here. First, we need to disseminate this uh, G20 principles international community. In this regard, uh, advocacy groups and think tanks like CSIS has an, a quite important role in disseminating the principles with stakeholders and general public and enlightening them about the benefits of quality infrastructure. Japan, for its part, has been utilizing international fora, such as the UN General Assembly, to promote the concept of quality infrastructure. Second, we need to ensure that donor countries carry out infrastructure investment in accordance with these principles. So we also look to multilateral development banks, like the World Bank, that has taken part in G20 discussions and we hope that those multilateral development banks to in internalize these principles. Third, as is indicated in the G20 principles, it is incumbent upon donor countries and institutions to help, develop, develop, help developing countries implement those principles. To this end, we are carrying our technical assistance in fields such as debt management, both bilaterally or through uh, international organizations such as the World Bank, and continue to do so. So let me conclude uh, by saying that uh, we are looking to redouble our efforts to consolidate the quality infrastructure as an international standard adhered to by donors and recipients alike. We will also strengthen our assistance to help developing countries implement these pro principles. I hope today's panel's discussion will help us move forward further on how we may best achieve those goals. Thank you very much.
Okay. Can I ask the panelists to come up, please? We've got some really uh, thoughtful people that are going to help us uh, uh, unpack the report and some of the issues that the ambassador helped put on the table. Um, got my. Um, I'm going to have my friend, uh, my friend Thomas Sarabritsky, who is uh, uh, he's a uh, principal economic advisor at the Inter-American Development Bank, and is in essence uh, an infrastructure economist. Is I think a way to for, to think about what Tomas. I've known Tomas a very long time. Uh, Ms. Havu, who is a Principal Financial Management Specialist at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, and then I've got uh, Michael Ronning, who's the Director of the Office of Technical Services of the Bureau of Asia at AID, are going to help us uh, unpack some of the issues. So can I, can I start with you, Tomas? Can I ask you, you you've, you've seen the, the brief we've put together. You've heard the Ambassador talk about the uh, principles that are going to be likely approved by the heads of state. Uh, these issues of these principles. Can you talk a little bit about, if I said to you, 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 these principles for quality infrastructure, what's your reaction to them? And how does the IDB uh, think, you know, how will, how will the IDB reflect these principles in terms of how they do their work currently? Or, and how, how are your clients thinking about these issues of quality infrastructure? Okay, well, first, thanks to CSIS for hosting this event, to you, Dan, for, for the invitation. Um, I mean, 100% in agreement with the, uh, with the briefing. Um, what the IDB is doing, uh, the issue of uh, sustainable infrastructure or quality infrastructure is quite new, and I would say quite new for all MDBs. Uh, starting in uh, 2012, the IDB um, had the mandate to prepare a new infrastructure strategy and the, the word sustainable infrastructure shows up for the first time. Before that, and still now, uh, we have safeguards, uh, safeguard policies that clearly lay out the conditions that we have to fulfill in all lending operations to comply with uh, environmental and social standards, say what not to do, how to manage, say, expropriation of land or resettlement. But the, the idea of sustainability or quality infrastructure is going beyond safeguards. It's starting beyond or before the project. So for me, the easiest, I guess, way to understand what is quality or sustainable infrastructure is first to choose the right projects and, do, and then do the projects right. And we are working more mm. and more, and I guess all MDBs on the planning stage, on choosing the, the right projects. And always, I guess, with examples work in this regard. And I always, uh, coming from Latin America, like to uh, give this example. It's the case of Brazil, uh, you know, very big country uh, in, with a huge increase in agricultural frontier, production of commodities. So the country has two options, either build new roads or improve the existing roads or Build railroads. So, so Tomas, just, just that's, that's an a, existential question yeah. for Brazil, right? Roads or railroads? Yeah, and you know there are trade-offs. Some of them are, are roads are easier to build, cheaper, uh, but maybe railroads are much better for for the environment, uh, but are more more way more expensive projects and difficult to build and then operate and regulate. So, uh, those are the choices that countries need to be made. And we are helping, I guess, all MDBs, uh, countries to better plan infrastructure. And that's, I guess, the challenge ahead. We pretty much know 
uh, or at least <laughs> not everybody will agree, but um, I guess we implement the projects in a good way, complying with safeguards, but I guess we need to do much more, increasingly more in the upstream uh, planning stage. When you say upstream, meaning sort of the host country government making decisions about roads versus railroads. Exactly. It's going to be here, it's going to be this long, this sort of thing. Exactly. What to build. Uh, and given these huge fiscal constraints, this in Latin America there's a huge investment gap. We need to invest double what uh, the quantity that we, the region is investing now. We have to be smart in what projects. Let me just. I want to just touch on three things, and then I want to move to, to Havu for, uh, after this, but I want to talk about environmental safeguards. I think when we think about sustainability, one of the implicit con concepts or definitions of sustainability has to do with environmental sustainability. If I say environmental sustainability and the IDB, how does that come across your radar screen in, in, when it comes to re infrastructure projects? Do you guys do environmental impact? How do, you, how do you think about that? Yeah, we do the, the assessments, and we think more and more in, in a holistic way. Uh, I'll give you again examples, I think it's easier. If you get um, electricity, I mean, the, the objective of countries is to provide access to everybody, to get universal access to electricity and water and sanitation. So you can provide access uh, to an increasingly urban population and don't care about the source of that uh, electricity, where it's coming from. You can provide the best uh, service, 24 hours, seven days a week. Uh, but what if that uh, electricity is coming from coal plants? Is that sustainability? In my opinion, it's not. Well, well, we, we may, we may, we may there may be a disagreement, but okay. Yeah, but well, that's uh, I guess the um, growing. Okay, but there's a growing. There's a there's because yes. Let me give you probably a less. Okay, give me a, a different. Less, uh, give me a different example. Give you a different <laughs> example, and for those that, uh, of you, many of you live in Washington D.C., right? Uh, so you get uh, fantastic quality of water. Actually, you should drink tap water because it's excellent. Uh, but if you notice, uh, the bill increased in couple of recent years, around $30, at least in my house. So 30% increase or 40% increase in the water bill. And I started looking, why is there an increase? And there's an infrastructure charge. And that's because the DC is funding a $4 billion or so dollar project to clean the Potomac to avoid mm. stormwater runoff. So the quality of service that you receive at home hasn't changed. But quality of service is changing. Why? Because you're, the city is taking care of uh, downstream water, the quality of water streams. So in my view, that's the definition of quality infrastructure that includes environmental considerations. So two other things I wanted to raise with you. So I first learned about this issue of sort of social constraints, social considerations and big infrastructure, and I was at the World Bank Group. And my friend Motoko Aizawa's here who used the term, the first time I heard it was about, I'm not gonna get the exact formulation, but like pre-informed consent or pre, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. There's this specific formula that has to do with, if you're a native group and you're an indigenous community and there are a lot of them in say the Amazon and you wanna build a big dam you, or big road, there has to be some kind of a conversation with this community and they have to sort of kinda be okay with it, if I can put it that way. And, and what, what, what okay with is sort of up for debate. So 
So can you talk a little bit about how do you guys think about social considerations on, on big infrastructure projects? We, had, uh, we have uh, very uh, detailed policies on how to engage, to do meaningful, that's I guess uh, the question is meaningful public consultation. Meaningful public consultation. Yeah. To be willing to change the design of the project. If a road goes from A to B, be willing to change the way, exactly the direction of the path of the, of the road and have compensation measures in place, mitigation measures. Yeah, it's very uh, strict. Say, in the case of expropriation, when you need to take land from people, the, the works cannot start unless you... I, I need to take, I need to take this farmland so I can build this road through it. Yeah, but you need to provide actual compensation before construction can start. Let, let me just... Uh, so there have been some complaints. So. I think both in the environmental and the social side, there's kind of, you can go wrong on two directions. I think you can go wrong in not following environmental rules. You can just say, I'm gonna cut down this forest, and there are, other, there are some countries that have a little bit of a reputation for either kind of doing that, that sort of thing, both developing countries and sometimes even lenders. And then you can also go wrong in terms of on the social side of kind of like not respecting those sorts of things. So there's two constraint things I worry about. One is that it takes five or seven years to do some environmental assessment, that we can go overboard on that, or that there's too much power in the hands of one or two, I'm gonna use this term on purpose, but let's call them activists or agitators when they say, okay, I, I, I don't have enough power or electricity in Guatemala, and so one or two people decide, well, I, I don't like this for, for whatever reason, and so I'm gonna prevent this project from happening. Is, 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 that, is that a real, should I be worried about that? Because I, I can, I'm concerned about sort of on the other, on the one hand, there's lots of worry about not respecting environmental concerns, which I think is legitimate, and I'm also worried about not respecting people's human rights or people having, what do you wanna call it, uh, serious consultation or meaningful consultation. But I worry, on the other hand, it can go overboard on the other side. What's your reaction to that? The, you can always find cases where it took too long. To it took too long. Uh, or there are, uh, there's been cases of uh, complaints that weren't uh, dealt properly. But I see safeguards in the same way as PPPs in uh, comparison with traditional public procurement. You know, people complain that PPPs, a topic that you've been yeah. studying in detail, uh, are take even longer or are more expensive yeah. than traditional. And those procurement. are probably true. And it's probably true, but the reason is that risks are, uh, you face a risks upfront. All the risks are on the table. That's the nice thing of PPPs. Traditional procurement tend to hide all the problems and then they show up later on. They, public procurement ends up, in my view, being most of the cases more expensive and you have conflicts, but you know, in the beginning nobody complains, so we start the project and then, uh, so with safeguards it's the same, uh, or environmental social considerations is the same, uh, we face the same problem. We address risks we find ways to mitigate them upfront before the project starts. So this, I think that's the way to, to approach. Uh, and overall, it's a good way. And, and you have to go a little bit, I guess the benefits come later on. If you engage with uh, an MDV to finance a project or a road, hopefully you train staff and the, on, on safeguards, on environmental, social considerations, and the, the local staff then implement 
those policies in other projects that are financed with the traditional local uh, funding. Okay, thanks a lot. Ha, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. You're with the IMF. Um, you're a public financial management specialist. So can you talk a little bit about how the IMF thinks about issues of infrastructure and how the issue of sustainability and quality infrastructure comes across your radar screen and your day job and how these issues come across the IMF more broadly? I, I can think of some myself, but I'd be curious how, how this, this comes across your radar screen. Thank you. Um, uh, I would like to first of all thank uh, the um, uh, CSIS uh, for hosting uh, this very important event. Uh, and also thank you for having me and thank you all for coming on a beautiful and you know, um, sunny Friday. Um, well, um, so uh, first of all, I think um, uh, uh, there is a consensus uh, that has emerged uh, that um, uh, infrastructure needs are sizable. Uh, and also overcoming the infrastructure bottlenecks uh, is the top priority uh, policy for many countries. Uh, however, uh, many countries have uh, limited fiscal space, uh, meaning that they cannot increase um, the public investment uh, in infrastructure as much as they would like to. So um, the, the, the key to address these uh, infrastructure needs uh, one of the key uh, is uh, to improve the quality of the investment in infrastructure so that you can obtain more um, returns, more results, infrastructure results from the same uh, amount of money you spend. Now, uh, the, the, the G20 uh, principles uh, give us uh, the high level uh, strategic uh, common direction and also uh, high aspiration for us to promote the quality of investment in infrastructure. Implementing these principles require uh, strong infrastructure governance. That is, like uh, you have said, the practices in the planning, uh, in the allocation, and also in the implementation of infrastructure projects. Um, the IMF uh, welcomes uh, Japan's initiative uh, for the G20 work this year to focus on promoting the, the quality aspect of the investment in infrastructure. Uh, so for its part, um, the IMF uh, jointly with the OECD uh, prepare a reference note on uh, governance of promoting infrastructure uh, quality investment. Uh, so the note plays the role as a bridging, a bridging role uh, between the high-level principles to the actual implementation on the ground. So in the reference note, we also um, refer to uh, the, some of the tools that the IMF has developed to help countries to strengthen the infrastructure governance because uh, each country has its own uh, context, its own needs, its own strengths and weaknesses. So in order to identify uh, which areas that they should improve in the practices of investment, uh, the IMF developed a framework uh, that is called PIMA, uh, Public Investment Management Assessment Framework, that identify all the key uh, features 
of the practices in the three phases of the public investment cycle, the planning, the allocation, and the implementation phases, and how to uh, improve the practices uh, in countries. Uh, the IMF also uh, developed, uh, jointly with the World Bank, a tool to assess the public-private partnerships, uh, PPPs, uh, fiscal risk, um, in a uh, tool called PFRA, the PPP uh, Fiscal Risk Assessment Model, in order to identify the fiscal costs and the fiscal risks associated with uh, PPP projects. So uh, we have conducted um, more than 50, to be exact, 53 uh, PMAS in 53 countries in the world since uh, 2015. Uh, in order, uh, and we have helped countries to identify uh, how to improve their infrastructure governance in order to improve uh, efficiency uh, of public investment. So, hi, I have several questions for you. So, if I am Brazil and I have an existential question, I have to choose between roads or railroads. Does Pima help with that, making that decision? Okay, so um, uh, here is what uh, Pima can do and also what Pima cannot do. Okay. So the PIMA, again, it's about the, the management of uh, public investment. Uh, so uh, what it can do in the case of you know, Brazil yeah. is that it will you know, advise the government to set out the criteria in order to appraise projects and to select projects and uh, adhere to these criteria. So we require that the criteria be transparent uh, and the criteria would help to select between projects. For example, in the criteria, you can have um, the criteria uh, for uh, the strategic importance of project, um, the implementation readiness of the project, viability of the project, feasibility of project, and you would, you know, you would uh, use the criteria to look at each specific project and to you know to give the the assessment or the ranking and then you will be able to compare between projects to select so that that is the you know what pima can do uh, pima cannot tell brazil to select railroad instead of road okay. for specific uh, you know, projects. Okay, so let me give you another example. So I, uh, Senator Romney asked me to come see him last week um, with a two or three other um, experts to talk about uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and to talk about a number of cases. I think every U.S. Senator on Capitol Hill has heard of Sri Lanka's port. This is a famous example. So if I, there's this uh, port, I'm going to describe this. So. The former president of Sri Lanka, who may get reelected, um, uh, is from a per particular region in Sri Lanka. There are two deep water ports that are better situated, uh, but the then president decided that he wanted to build a new, a third port in his region, and it wasn't necessarily a great idea. wasn't well planned. Took on a lot of debt, um, and there may have been some bribes taken, maybe. Uh, and it wasn't really well done. And then when the port, the Sri Lankans couldn't pay the debt back, the lenders took the port over. 
Now, I think every American senator knows about this. So tell me about Pima. Let, tell me if we said, if I was using Pima, could could I stop? Could could somebody who's a mid-level bureaucrat in Sri Lanka, if they were trained, and I'm serious about this, could they present this and say, you know, Mr. President, I'm looking at this idea you have because he, the lenders and the constructors dealt directly with the head of state, but someone had to go and implement this. Couldn't there have been some kind of an exercise say, mm, this isn't maybe necessarily a good idea from sort of a series of sort of engineering standpoints, maybe in terms of a debt sustainability standpoint, or maybe that this is compared to say, improving the other two ports that this would be a better use. Could you talk about that? Sri Lanka, let's use Sri Lanka as an example in this port that is very well known here in Washington. Yeah, okay. Um, thank you very much. I think uh, you just gave a, uh, an excellent example of inefficiency. Yes. Uh, in public investment. It's a case study in inefficiency. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, um, I was uh, I have been in Sri Lanka several times. I have conducted uh, we have conducted uh, Pima in Sri Lanka, and uh, we also you know um, this and put they, out and this, Pima uh, was rolled out after 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 this yes. right. So they it, said, I really wish we had Pima yes. when we made the port decision. Uh, that's, um, that, that, that was what, uh, that was a comment that we also received I believe from it. the Sri Lankan authorities. So, um, uh, so basically, uh, what, what Pima uh, could, you know, um, yeah, could do to prevent these uh, things happen is that if you could, you know, uh, the, the Pima would help the government to actually set out the clear process, the steps, uh, moving from the you know the initial uh, concept of the project to the preparation of project, to the appraisal, to the review of the appraisal results, and then to the selection with the selection criteria. So, if you have a project, a co an idea from the president, then you will have you know that idea has to be developed step by step and through the screening that would show how much that idea cost in terms of fiscal cost, in terms of fiscal risk, and what are the alternatives, what are the differences between the benefits and the costs between these alternatives. And if, you know, the, 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 the best that the middle bureaucrats can do is to actually to, to give the information, the necessary information, so that the country could have uh, could, could take uh, informed decision to to make the right uh, investment in the right project. So I'm really pleased to say that you said that the the IMF welcomes these six principles that are going to be adapted by the G20. One of the concerns that um, has been raised in the last year or two is what's been described as um, you know of of countries taking on too much debt to to finance projects and then not being able to pay those those debts off. So Sri Lanka is an example of this, but there are many other examples. Can you talk about um, how does the IMF help governments to manage their debt and think about taking on debt as it relates to infrastructure? And so, and are there some debts that are on the books and some that are off the books? And how should we? Is yeah. part of it about trying to get more transparency so everyone understands what? what people are borrowing. So for right, Pakistan, for example, is a country that has taken on a lot of debt, but in the IMF is in the process, I think, of giving them a package of some kind 
but I think as part of the agreement, they've agreed to kind of open their books and say, this is all the debt we've taken on that's not necessarily on our public sector books. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yes, yes. Um, so um, uh, you actually touched one of the, the key uh, or the heart of the sustainable uh, infrastructure development because in order to, uh, you know, to build infrastructure in a sustainable way, you need to ensure that the, the, you know, the infrastructure investment is affordable. So uh, at the IMF, um, uh, we, uh, we have shown that, uh, first of all, the global public debt uh, has tripled uh, during the past 20 years from uh, 20 uh, trillion. Uh, yep. 20 trillion um, uh, US dollars in uh, 1997 and up to 67 trillion uh, US dollars um, in uh, 2017. Now, with, with this, um, one of the things that the, the, the government, uh, in order to make uh, before borrowing uh, for public investment um, uh, investment, uh, is that uh, you need to take into consideration um, if the investment is stay within the fiscal uh, space that you have or the, the limited fiscal space in many countries. So, so the IMF has provided uh, policy advice as well as technical assistance. Example of policy advice could be um, for different countries at different stages, you can have different uh, policy options. For example, for those countries with infrastructure uh, bottlenecks, if you want to, um, uh, you know, address these bottlenecks and you have available fiscal space, use it in order to increase the investment. But if you don't have, uh, countries don't have the fiscal space, they need to create this fiscal space by either uh, mobilize more revenue or uh, cut the low priority spending. Uh, with uh, you know countries with uh, with actually uh, fiscal consolidation, meaning that they are at, at debt distress, they cannot borrow more, then they need to improve the efficiency of the spending, meaning that you keep the priority spending for investment and cut on other uh, low priority spending. And with uh, countries, for example, I visited, um, uh, I worked on Indonesia, and we did a PIMA in Indonesia. Indonesia is uh, like disaster prone uh, countries, one of the, yeah. the most disaster prone in the world. You can name all kinds of natural disasters in Indonesia. So uh, for Indonesia, for example, the focus of this priority spending should be on resilient of inf uh, in, uh, the resilient infrastructure. So pre preparing for tsunamis, which is a real thing, or preparing yes. for floods, or preparing yes. for earthquakes, that you need infrastructure that prepares for you for resiliency, when you think about it, yes? Yes, 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 that's right. Um, uh, so uh, on the other thing that you mentioned, that is the, you know, the, the borrowing limits and also the transparency, uh, I can give you an example of uh, Mongolia, where uh, we, uh, we, we did a PIMA, and we look at uh, how um, you know, uh, investment uh, in Mongolia has been uh, conducted. Uh, one of the things is um, the Development Bank of Mongolia, for example, uh, since 2012, they increase their borrowing like large amount. And um, this resulted uh, in uh, an increase of uh, the debt to the government up to 10% of GDP 
in 2013, so only in, in one year. And you know, we have seen volatile investment um, in uh, Mongolia. We also see that they have you know, real deficit and they actually increased the you know, uh, investment spending to the level that is not affordable and not, of course, sustainable. So the Pima advised um, the, the government to um, bring uh, this uh, you know, off-budget uh, spending to, uh, into uh, the comprehensive budget so that the debt uh, can be managed in a transparent way and also in a sustainable way for investment. Great, thank you very much. Let me, I know Tomas, you had a yeah. two finger. Yeah, um, there's realities in the world that are a little bit different. I'm all in favor of fiscal sustainability, um, but let me give you the experience of Latin America. Investment, public investment is around one, in infrastructure, 1.5% of GDP. So to give you numbers, just an idea, the whole Latin America invests $150 billion a year in infrastructure. This is the same that India invests every year. The whole region. One third of what China invests every year. So it's not spending enough. So, uh, absolutely, it's not spending enough. But public spending went up a lot. In Brazil, 30% of public spending in the late 80s was allocated to infrastructure, to capital yeah. spending. These days, only 5%. Really? And the commodity boom of uh, the Latin American joy, public spending went up 3.5%. Only 10% of that increase went to infrastructure. So I guess the message is that, at least for Latin America, is countries need more investment in infrastructure. There's a huge gap. And what we need, uh, as you said, is prioritize spending. What happened is that there is a bias against capital spending. Why? Well, that's because, it, well, it's the, the political equilibrium that prioritizes more uh, current spending. For meaning instance, social program transfer, mean, non-contributory uh, pensions. So pensions uh, or health, food aid or unemployment assistance. Yeah, all social programs. Have so in a, let me go back to the Brazil example. So if I'm the Brazilian government, I have a choice between railroads and roads. But that's in the larger context of some larger public choices about railroads and roads and Fome Zero, Hunger Zero, which is their program around school feeding programs or unemployment insurance or paying pensions. There's been an explosion in social safety nets in the last 20 years in developing countries. Exactly. Now if you go to Brazil, there is no option. They can't build either roads or uh, railroads. And the reason is that uh, spending social issues, in particular pensions, is exploding. So that's why the government is trying to address. So um, I guess, again, Super in favor of being fiscally uh, responsible and setting the prices right, but uh, in some regions, what we need to do is convince government to spend to reprioritize spending and invest more in uh, capital. Hard, hard infrastructure. Two types of capital: yeah. hard infrastructure and human capital. Okay. So, how do you have a view on yes, this? Um, so, actually, in the in the Pima framework, uh, we have an aspect that we look at that is the the budget unity, meaning that um, you need to um, uh, plan and allocate um, the current spending and the capital spending all together. So, instead of having the you know in many countries dual budgets. I want to spend this much on capital spending. I want to spend this much on the current spending. Yeah. 
Instead of doing so, the you know uh, the, they, you have to put it together. So, for example, in the case of uh, let's say education, the Ministry of Education would need to look at how many um, teachers they have, how many uh, classrooms they have, right? And make sense of it and also the needs, uh, how many students need to be educated. And then you will come up with saying that, oh, actually, uh, when I look at you know, uh, the classroom ratio to, the uh, I mean, to teachers, you actually have more teachers uh, than, the, than the, you know, the number of classrooms. Then you need to increase the, you know, the, the classroom. So basically, looking at both current spending and capital spending together would give you the holistic picture in order to actually achieve to the results that how many students that you can educate. Okay, so let me just, I'm gonna to come to Michael in a second, but for both Ha and for Tomas, I think it's important to understand that much of the world's in public infrastructure is not financed through the private sector. It is much of it is financed through taxes. Right, is that right? Am I right? That much of much is actually financed. I go and collect taxes, I then turn around mm -hmm. and I then go pay for a bridge. It's actually not a very small percentage is actually sort of public private partnership or privately financed infrastructure. Is that is that an accurate picture in much of the developing world today? Tomas, is that true? Yep. In, is that, in Latin America is seventy percent public. Okay, so seventy percent meaning that I pay my taxes and then the government turns around and then they spend a piece of yeah. that on building Absolutely. a road or a bridge or an yeah. airport. Is that right? And the, correct. And then the 30% is uh, PPP through private financing, but heavily concentrated in a few economies. Okay. And yeah, what percent is MDB financed in Latin America? MDB is uh, around 15 billion, so 10%. Okay, so it's the, not, it's significant. All the MDBs present in Latin America account for 10% of the financing. Of the envelope, right? So when we, think about, when we think about infrastructure, the MDBs have an important role to play in terms of standards, advice, planning. But the much still a large chunk of the pie is taxes collected by governments. Is that right? Okay. So let me, let me turn just to my friend Ha for a minute about this. So, so there's this whole area of practice called domestic resource mobilization. And we need to come up with a better term than domestic resource mobilization. We need some marketing people to make it more sexy than domestic resource mm -hmm. mobilization. But it's not just taxes. It includes taxes and tax collection and public financial management, which is something you do. It also includes things like local capital markets and uh, remittances, it re requires a lot of things. Could you talk a little bit about, isn't there a role as a public financial management specialist, isn't there a role for getting countries to collect more money? It doesn't mean squeezing the same people who are being taxed, but sort of broadening the tax base and then spending that money better. Isn't that kind of one aspect as we think about infrastructure? And then the second is, a lot of infrastructure is subnational governments. We have a lot of, we have an urbanization wave. I think Asia is now 50% cities. I don't know what percentage of Latin America is urban today. Is it 60%? 80. 80%. So Latin America is an 80% urban region. And our mental maps, I'm not sure everyone thinks that way, but at the, at the, I think Argentina is the most urbanized country in, in Latin America. Could be, yeah, but the Latin America is the most My, 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 my Escuela Argentina textbook told yeah. me that. So, anyways, when I, it was so, I, my, anyway, so I believe, so it's a highly urbanized. Highly urban. Now, Africa is about to be 50% urban. Okay, given all this urbanization, a lot of the infrastructure is not going to be dealt with at capitals. It's not going to be in the capital of 
Guatemala or the capital of Sri Lanka. It's going to be at the city level or the subnational level. Can you talk, either of you talk about this issue of subnational government? Then, Michael, I will get to you in a second. So, Ha and Tomas, can you talk about subnational governments in this conversation about infrastructure? Can either of you just comment on this? Okay. Um, so, uh, basically, the, the, um, uh, the idea is um, to collect more. Uh, so, um, the, because if you want to spend more, on need, infrastructure. On infrastructure, you need to collect more to be able to sustainably yeah. uh, spend it, right? Um, so uh, the, the, the notion of, you know, collect more could be, like you said, you know, broaden the, 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 tax, the base. tax base, also use the tax policy. Uh, but, um, you know, part of uh, infrastructure as, as uh, investment we can see is, you know, part of it is a public investment, which could be the investment from the national governments, local governments, uh, from the uh, state-owned enterprises, but also in the you know uh, PPP, uh, public-private partnerships, uh, where the, uh, the 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 private sector would finance. Let me emphasize this: is you know you have the financing from the private sector, but not funding, because. Uh, you you only can fund a project uh, infrastructure project either through you know the, the the taxpayers or the users of the infrastructure meaning the user fee nothing is free from the private sector so that is you know very important to know it's like you are buying a house uh, bank would you know finance but you will pay uh, so it's it's very clear either the taxpayers pay or the, the users of the infrastructure would pay. Um, in, in advanced countries, we have seen that um, actually the, you know, the, the big chunk of public investment, of investment in infrastructure is from the private sector. So uh, such as, you know, things such as water uh, would, uh, would, would, would be, or electricity uh, would be, you know, uh, contributed from the private sector, the, the big trunk. Yeah. And, and a, a smaller trunk uh, from the, the, you know, the, the public uh, investment, and a little bit of it, it's from the, the, the PPP, which is okay. the public-private partnership. Uh, in the case of uh, local, in, uh, local government's uh, provision of uh, infrastructure, uh, one thing that, that we need to consider is, um, you know, which services is, are, are the best for the local government to provide rather than for the uh, national government to provide. And also, you, you need to avoid the case of, you know, uh, local governments receive more responsibility than the, the, the money uh, allocated to them. Because if you try to push down some responsibility for infrastructure investment to local governments, but uh, at the same time, not enough resources allocated uh, for the local governments, then you, you, you would not solve the problem of you know, uh, lack of investment in infrastructure. Okay. Michael, thanks for being here. Um, so you're the office of tech, you're director of the Office of Technical Services Bureau of Asia. When I last met you, you were in Myanmar. Um, so you've had a really, you're a foreign service officer, you've had a really interesting career at AID. How does AID, USAID, the foreign aid arm of the US government fit into this conversation of quality infrastructure and sustainability and quality infrastructure? Well, first of all, I'd say from the US government perspective with the, in the Asia context, the Indo-Pacific vision has given us a pretty strong platform 
to address many of the issues that have come up in this conversation. Yeah. The weak regulatory environment, um, lack of policy oversight, um, corruption, uh, a disregard for transparency, to be frank, um, which leads to so many other problems. So I think from AID's perspective um, and the Asia Bureau's perspective, we see this as a grand governance issue in many ways. Democratic governance, economic governance, and natural resource governance, getting into some of the yeah. environmental safeguards issues that you mentioned early on in the conversation. And throughout all of those, our role is really to play um, at the ground level, at the country level, to build that capacity to improve governance. That means helping them develop the policies, the regulations that oversee it, but also helping them implement it. And to your point about the, the mid-level bureaucrat, um, often mid-level bureaucrats are some of um, our strongest partners in these countries, but they can only be successful if the policies and regulations that are governing investment in infrastructure are in place and that, that the rule of law is followed. So governance capacity is absolutely critical across all of those areas and absent that, um, you end up in these situations where you end up with, um, with unsustainable debt. Um, you end up with um, not just collecting more taxes, but it's not just about collecting more taxes, it's how you, how you collect it, how you report on it, are you accountable for it to the public. And then lastly, I'd just add that, who are the players involved here? Uh, we often get caught up in just that government to government relation. And what are we hearing from the private sector about engaging on these issues of infrastructure development or economic development or even democratic governance? And um, I think that's been one of the interesting things with the Indo-Pacific. Um, it's given us a platform and an opportunity to talk more with the private sector, with civil society, with our partners from Japan and Australia to really understand those issues from their side of the table as well. Um, so we, we work with the government, we work on the capacity, but we also hear from the private sector um, and civil society about what are those barriers to getting into the market, what are those challenges to governance that they see so that there's an enabling environment and there's a more level playing field for all of them to engage and invest. And that is what will give you um, more sustainable infrastructure that protects the environment and um, ensures long-term uh, development sustainability. Okay. So, you know, I'm a big fan of AIDs. I chair the outside policy <coughs> advisory board called ACFA, which is yes. like the defense policy board equivalent. Nobody knows what ACFA is, but except for sort of in the aid world. But when I talk to like colleagues here at CSS, they're very impressed if I say it's the defense policy board equivalent. They're like, oh, that's really <laughs> impressive. So, so you, you know I love AID, and I know you guys are a great force of good in the world. So when I think about regulation, corruption, transparency, planning, I agree with all that. I actually think your way of describing it is that these are, this is a grand governance challenge. I think is a good way to think about infrastructure is this is a grand governance challenge. And I think your way of framing it about democratic governance, and I think that actually does matter. I do think that um, to the, now, we often, there are some, some observers who admire governments that are not democratic, say, oh, isn't it great? We can build a, a high-speed rail in about 20 minutes. Isn't that wonderful? Um, now, they may have knocked over a whole bunch of historic buildings in the process, or they may have confiscated people's stuff without any kind of a conversation, or they may have um, kind of trod over minority communities or indigenous communities' um, rights in some kind of willy-nilly, if I can put it that way. And so I think there's, 
there's, some, there's a trade-off. You have a democracy, it means that you gotta bring people along, right? So I do think in, in democratic societies, some of these things are harder, I think, is, is, a, is, a, is a harder thing. So I actually, I'm glad you raised this issue of democratic governance. And I also think, to the extent that, there's also another problem with democratic governance, which is a lot of these infrastructure projects take a long time. So some of these things take like 10 or 15 years. If you want to build a big, right, is that right? Is that fair, Tomas? Yeah. So most elected officials have a timeline of four years or eight years, and so, um, there's some constraint. There's some. There's an. There's a incentive mismatch between elected officials. Now, if you're in a government where it's not democratic, I'll, I'll describe it that way. Um, that you can perhaps be there for I don't know, ten or fifteen or twenty or twenty-five years. You can. That's that's maybe that. I guess that's a positive. I'm not necessarily sure that's a good thing. But I would just say that. There's a problem in democ democracies where some of these larger infrastructure projects, someone else might get the credit. Isn't that a problem, Michael? Isn't that, isn't that an issue that, that comes up in some of these larger infrastructure projects? Because I, I, think, I think it's a, it's a conundrum of democracy. Um, I would, I hadn't thought about it like that. I would just say this, that well, I mean, in I mean, a democratic society. You had a society think tank, you think things, things <laughs> up. We think deep thoughts here. I would tanks. say, yeah. <laughs> I think democratic governance is, is, it's important, but I would also say that good governance and rule of law, um, if they are regulated properly, and if you have the transparency, and if you're communicating with the public, um, and having that dialogue with the public before you ever even build something, yeah. before you're talking about that. W when you come out the other end and you have that infrastructure project, um, I think you, you, you um, navigate that conundrum that you just outlined. Okay. Um, but that, that's incumbent upon the governments to actually do that and to be willing and have the political will to engage in that. And, and I think at the end of the day, the long-term development will be served much better in that country, including the infrastructure development. Okay, so let me list a series of very non-sexy things that AID does that are, and that this is not a, this is not photogenic. It's other than sort of the picture of the bridge. This is not something that pulls at the heartstrings of political leaders in, say, a U.S. context. So we, we, we have a, we have in essence a political compact to get sort of the, what's called the 150 account. This is sort of our, international engagement account. And so some of it is a, is a mixture of storytelling and some of it's a mixture of national interest and some of it's a mixture of sort of pulling at one's heartstrings or sort of emotionally compelling. This is not something, this, isn't, this is hard to kind of take a picture of domestic resource mobilization. It's hard to take a picture of project preparation facilities. It's hard to take a picture of um, improving transparency. I mean, you can probably get at it, but um, it's hard to take a picture of planning infrastructure or municipal planning training. It's, hard, it's sure as heck difficult to make the intellectual case that you have to train up a cohort or two cohorts of public sector procurement officials to move from a low bid context to a life cycle cost context. It's hard to put on a bumper sticker. It's hard to wear a button for this, right? It's, this, is, this, is, this is clunky public policy stuff that's really, really important, but really critical if you want to move up the curve from, say, low income to middle income or middle income to upper income, these kinds of really unsexy, super boring things or things like Pima, like actually doing all this kind of stuff actually matters, right? And so I think AID, you have a real role in sort of all of those sorts of things, whether it's 
helping them collect more, broaden their tax base, or spend the money better, you guys do that. Anti-corruption stuff, you guys do that. You do some training, you do tr public official training. You're, and so, so you, you mentioned this in the pregame, you're getting asks by governments to do this in Asia. You don't have to name the government. Can you talk about some of the demand signals that you're getting? Because this was something that came up about, we can kind of supply push stuff from Washington, but in Allison's, maybe one of the roles of the G20 is to help generate global demand for certain kinds of things, and you just you got a demand signal from a partner government. Michael, talk about that. Yeah, and it's really not the only one. I mean, I think we hear increasingly that government governments want to they see what's happening as countries get trapped in unsustainable debt. Uh, they see what happens when they ultimately get a bad pro infrastructure project, and so I think there is um, some beginning of thinking of how do we mitigate this from the outset as we think about our planning? How can we more effectively plan um, and think about those projects that we really need to do? And also, how can we get the right projects, good quality, um, not when we're in the middle of building it, but actually when we're in the planning stages? And we do hear more about that um, from some of those, uh, from, you know, from higher level leadership, but even from those middle but, level But you guys got a phone call about this. You guys got an yeah. ask, right? We, we, get, we get asked all the time from certain governments in the region um, to help them think about how they can more effectively plan um, their infrastructure to make sure that it is more sustainable when they ultimately build whatever it is they want to build. Can you talk about what Asia Edge is? Because I think it's relevant to this discussion as well. Yeah. Um, I think Asia Edge is um, what was announced in July of last year by uh, Secretary, Secretary Pompeo and by um, uh, Administrator Green at yeah. the Indo-Pacific Business Forum. Uh, this is um, really about accelerating the ener energy sector's transformation in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, from an AID perspective, that where we're focused on helping partner countries, and I, this kind of floats into the infrastructure lane yeah, as yeah. well on some of this. Um, uh, having more integrated, smart and secure and profitable energy sectors. Um, promote uh, utility modernization um, through and, and enhancing that performance. Fostering regional connectivity um, for energy, um, which is, I think, um, something regionally uh, a lot of governments are looking at. Mm -hmm. And attracting- APEC and ASEAN have whole big commitments on sort of interconnecting up the region, both from a power and an infrastructure Correct. standpoint, right? Yep. And then attracting um, increased levels of private sector investment um, in the region. And there, I will mention that that goes back to the whole governance transparency thing about getting those investments so that um, legitimate players that want to invest have an opportunity and see a procurement system or whatever it is to invest in energy in that country and getting the right players to do it who will do a good job. Okay, um, talk about, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, you, we're gonna have a new DFC, we're gonna have a Development Finance Corporation and there's gonna be a lot more working together between AID and the new DFC and I think there's gonna be I think opportunities for sort of either project preparation or the, uh, the, the DFC will be able to provide investment capital for certain kinds of infrastructure projects, but sort of laying the groundwork for that in my mind is it's things like changing the rules of the game in a country, which is something AID can do, or certain kinds of technical assistance. Now some of it may, the DFC may do on a specific basis, but I think a lot of the technical assistance may fall to or institutions like AID or TDA or the MCC. To talk a little bit about how, about that. 
So um, the Indo-Pacific um, Business Forum last year launched the Infrastructure Transaction and Assistance Network. Mm. This, um, or ITAN as I think it's often um, referred to, um, this has created a very helpful platform, I'd say, for the U.S. government um, to coordinate, um, exercise our own capabilities, yep. um, divide and conquer on those, uh, the big efforts throughout the Indo-Pacific, um, and, and also coordinate with other donors, like I mentioned earlier, such as Japan, Australia, and New Zealand, and others. Um, that are interested in, in doing good quality infrastructure, supporting good quality infrastructure and sustainable infrastructure in the region. On the USAID side of it specifically, um, it's exactly what you just mentioned. It's, it's really around building the capacity of countries um, to more, uh, to conduct those feasibility studies, conduct um, better procurements, which is a challenge, and again, that's the front end of that infrastructure investment. Uh, prioritize public-private partnerships and engagement with the private sector, um, and, then, and then to plan and allocate the appropriate resources um, toward infrastructure investment. I think you touched on this a bit as well, about how you think about allocating those resources. Um, all of this takes a very significant amount of capacity to execute when you think about it for these governments. And, it sh and it, you know, it's better when they have the capacity to do it. It will make the projects mm -hmm. better. It will make them more sustainable down the road. And it will also make them uh, more accountable for the investments. Good. You all have been a very patient audience. I'd love to hear um, from this audience. I've got folks I'd love to call on if, if people are shy. But I'd love to see some hands. And, and I'd, I'd happily call on some folks who've, who've got some questions for this audience. This gentleman here. Others? OK. Hey, Sundar. Or young. This person here, my, my friend Paula, this gentleman with the, uh, the, with the, with the, with the uh, white shirt. So these three people, this gentleman with the tie first. Thank you. Name and your organization and keep your question or comment brief, please. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, interesting discussion. I'm Yuichiro Abe. Um, I'm studying at NYU Law School. And I have a question about time frame and the uh, uh, motivation for the politicians in the recipient countries. I imagine, uh, I think, uh, yeah, some politician has motivation to prioritize the short-term uh, project, even sacrificing the long-term national interest in the uh, development, development assistance. But and then you, you discussed about the necessity of technical assistance and also the um, public investment management assessment. But how to overcome that um, motivation among politicians, and what the role of the international organization and also other. Uh, uh, countries, outside countries, to support or overcome that uh, difficulty in the recipient countries. Okay, please pass it back to my friend Paula. Paula. Thank you very much. Paula Feeney from Cardno. Very interesting discussion. Um, question for uh, USAID, please. Uh, you talk about doing business differently in the Asian context. You've talked about involving in governance. Fascinating idea there, but when you get to the mission level, will there be any formation of teams to work on this, bringing together, for example, the private sector engagement officer at each post, the uh, DRG, the democracy governance mm -hmm. officer, and the economic growth office? I is there going to be some new operational efficiency built into uh, AID missions in that part of the world to maybe make some of this discussion become uh, a reality. Okay, great. And please pass it back to the gentleman there. Yeah. Uh, my, name, my name is Trey Taylor. My company is Verdant Power. 
It's uh, marine renewable energy or dammless hydropower. Mm. So, uh, Tomas, you, you touched on this. You mentioned holistic. Uh, so the question is to the panel in general, when we talk about holistic approaches, are you implying the water, food, energy nexus approach to developing sustainable communities, which is critical to water management? Mm. Okay. Great. Thank you. Why don't we take those? So, Tomas, let me start with you. If you take any of the questions that were, you have to answer all of them, but... No. Um, okay. So the, the first on incentives is a, is a great question. You touched upon this and that leads to a question that I don't have an answer is who is the champion of this agenda? Who is the champion of the sustainable or quality infrastructure agenda? And um, it's, a, it's a tough question. Um, in Latin America, what happens, and I think all over the world in developing countries, even beyond the, the, the the incentives problem or, um, you know, that uh, politicians want to inaugurate uh, infrastructure and um, ministries of finance, and we are working in the IDB with one country in the region that asked uh, for, for help to do a national infrastructure plan, and the request came from the Ministry of Finance. Why? Because the Ministry of Finance is like several line ministries that come with too many projects, all of them not well prepared, and ministers of finance don't know how to handle that. So it's even before the quality dimension, we have a, a governance problem. And that goes, um, again, to the lack of uh, good planning or a national infrastructure plan where there is a basic consensus or uh, outside institutions that challenge uh, the, the, the projects that are chosen by government. I'm, I think that one possible avenue is uh, what happens in Australia with Infrastructure Australia that is a, in, has an independent, there is an independent body that audits the, um, the infrastructure projects in the country. National Infrastructure Commission in the UK does a very, very good job. So that's, uh, I think those avenues reduce the incentives of politicians to choose uh, projects as they please or they are not the, the best for the country. And then, uh, short note, uh, at least in, in the IDB, the um, water, food, energy nexus is super important. We have a whole group working on it. We can engage and we can share information, but it's, it's key. Um, Latin America is a region that has probably the most uh, availability of water, but still there are conflicts in, in some cities that don't have access and that we have conflicting um, you know, demands for water, a lot of agricultural mm. production, and at the same time, you don't have enough water in some of the cities, for instance, in Lima, in Peru. So, and then a lot of mining activities that take a lot of, use a lot of water. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a key issue. Forward, key issue. Huh? Yeah. Uh, well, um, I, I think um, uh, one of the questions uh, touched upon uh, a key issue of um, uh, you know uh, short-term versus uh, long-term uh, interests, and also you know uh, it is quite a political question as well. So how to kind of kind of you know reduce the uh, negative political impact on selecting not the right projects. Um, practically, if you, um, we, uh, we, we have seen this, uh, for example, um, when, uh, like, um, like Dan, you said, yeah. politicians uh, just got elected and want to, you know, to deliver some results. 
Now, one of the things you can show is that uh, in order to, uh, for example, prepare a large project, it would take uh, you know, roughly minimum three years to prepare it properly. And if you, don't, uh, if, if you just start before it is prepared properly, it may take even longer to actually complete the projects and, and actually to receive the results. So uh, if you could you know, lay out um, the, the, you know, the, the projects that are implementation ready, and it, is, you know, it has been already prepared for the past uh, three, five years, and it is in the sectoral plans, uh, which is quite you know, stable. And you can show that you know, with this, we can achieve within the medium term, for example. That's the one. Another example is that uh, in the US, we look at um, the, the relations between maintenance and um, the you know, people's uh, perception, thinking, feeling about the quality of infrastructure. We have seen the correlations between whenever a government increases uh, maintenance uh, spending, then the quality, the, the, the people's perception in the survey about the quality of infrastructure increased, and the politicians got re-elected. So it's quite you know, a smart way that you can, if you can present as a middle level uh, bureaucrats, the good, I mean, you know, the relevant information to you know, politicians to make you know, informed decisions. Uh, another example is um, when we were in Myanmar, the allocation, how much you spend on each project is important. If you have new politicians and new uh, projects to start, it means that you have to kind of you know, uh, stop the ongoing projects. Uh, you cannot have money to you know, spend on ongoing projects. And we did an analysis. We look at you know, the average spending on all projects every year. But compared to the total cost to, to complete the projects, and we, find that, we found that uh, every year, the government allocate about 5% of the total cost to, to complete the projects. I talked to the minister and said to him, it means that these projects will get completed in 20 years. Mm -hmm. Because every year you allocate 5%. And there are even projects that, has a, that receive allocation of only 1% per year. So this is we call 100-year project, right? So, so this kind of you know, um, short-term thinking, if you can show the expense of the cost of it versus the medium-term thinking, uh, versus you know long-term thinking, and when you can achieve the results, because politicians you know care about results, you can use the results as a leverage to persuade. Great, Michael. Um, well, maybe I'll address the specific USAID question. <clears throat> the um, there's a I could I'll try to keep it as short as possible. But um, the administrator Green has launched the Journey to Self Reliance. Um, process um, strategic thinking for our agency. Um, it is, uh, for those that aren't familiar with that, it's, the administrator talks a lot about this, about how do we work with our countries to um, move them forward so that there is a day where there's an end, the need for foreign assistance and that country. That's the vision that the journey the self-reliance wants to seek. But how we do that um, is looking very carefully um, at capacity and commitment of those countries. And so there are various ways in which we measure that and look at that. It takes a look at um, a lot of things we talked about today about inclusive uh, growth, um, uh, good governance, um, private sector investment, and unlocking 
uh, private sector investment for development, knowing that we don't have all the dollars for development, but we want to help unlock those resources to do that. So that's at the broad vision agency level. Um, in I should also add that um, in addition that we've, the administrator also uh, not too long ago launched our private sector engagement plans as well and how we need to think uh, a little bit differently about how we do that and how we engage the private sector. At the country level, it's going to vary from country to country. Every country is on their own path, uh, their own development trajectory, and we're going to have to adjust that mm -hmm. accordingly. You can't just go do the exact mm -hmm. same thing in every country, and you're not going to provide the exact same technical mm -hmm. assistance at a certain level in the same country. That doesn't make sense. You need to adapt that and modify it um, as it relates to the needs and, the, and where that country is in their development path. And so at the country level, as I think you were getting at, um, we are developing strategies around this. Uh, one, to uh, more calculate in that capacity and commitment on these important issues. We're also very carefully at a country level as well. And again, this is going to vary from country to country. How do we more effectively engage the private sector and have that dialogue and partnership to unlock and, um, the resources for development. But also, as I mentioned earlier, and I think this is very important, that we understand the challenges of the private sector to um, engaging and investing in that country so that we can, as we think about how we develop capacity, uh, calculate and factor that into our assistance and our technical assistance. I think we should end it here. I'm very grateful again to our friends in Japan for uh, helping us get this done. I really wish my friends in Japan lots of luck next week um, for the Osaka G20. And uh, thank you all for coming today. Please join me in thanking the panel.